0: We're talking today about the way we approach food preparation at home and I am acutely aware that we may be stepping on a toe or two with what we're going to say today. Welcome to Longleaf Breeze, subsistence farmers using three simple principles, approaching but never reaching subsistence, it's got to be fun while we're doing it and we don't make all misstatements. And now, Lee and Amanda Borden.
1: Thanks, Adrian, and welcome to our podcast of June 7th, 2012. We are going to be talking about the way we prepare food, the way we choose to. More importantly, the implications that has for a subsistence diet.
0: And I I should say at the outset, this is not about uh, people who don't prepare food at all. Um, We had a delightful conversation with our friends last night, and she mentioned a friend of hers who actually has a flower arrangement in her range.
1: Which means she does not use her range to cook.
0: (laughs) No cooking at all in her kitchen. We're not talking about her. This is all about people who do prepare food at home, but we're going to be talking about some of the differences we perceive in the philosophy or the approach to preparing food at home.
1: And the difference that we're using, the terminology we're using, has to do with food or items on your menu, you know, items that you'll be serving for dinner or lunch or whatever that are recipe-driven versus those that are availability-driven. Um, we've, from time to time on this podcast, mentioned one of our favorite quotes from Barbara Kingsolver, who talks about, when she, in, re- in reference to vegetables, preparing whatever is lovely and in season.
0: And that is definitely our approach. Yes, it's my, yeah. We would call ours availability driven. Right. We start with what's there and then work our way down. Yeah,
1: that's my watchword, whatever's lovely and in season.
0: So before we get to the approach that you and I take, let's talk a little bit about what I believe is the prevailing model in America. Uh, And probably the
1: way we grew up. Right, the way Absolutely. the homes in which the more traditional way. I would of the 60s. say
0: not only the way our parents prepared food, but actually the way our grandparents prepared food. You have to go all the way pat, back to our great grandparents, I think, to get past this whole recipe-driven paradigm.
1: That's t- probably true, but I will take issue with the way my grandmother prepared food. I do think a lot of it was availability. When green beans were in season. She bought green beans at the curb market, that kind of thing, so
0: okay yeah. uh, you're probably right. her grandmother a, yeah. probably was not recipe driven
1: and she might have been sort of a hybrid in that she was she certainly had recipes for her cakes, although Lord knows they were in her head, and she took them to her grave with her. I don't know her recipes, and I wish I did uh, because they were delicious but um but it's true that when she baked a cake or prepared, she really didn't do casseroles. She sort of predated
0: yeah. casseroles yeah. as a
1: fad. But um,
0: So when we she, talk about recipe-driven, what we're describing is I start with what I want to prepare. I think I'm going to do, I don't know, what, what do we say? Um,
1: asparagus casserole.
0: Asparagus casserole. And I know what goes in asparagus casserole. It has some asparagus. It has some cream of mushroom soup. It has cheese, some cheese. Crackers. It has some crackers and a couple of other things. So I then go to the grocery store and buy those ingredients. And then I bring them home and prepare my asparagus casserole. That's right. That's yeah. recipe-driven mm-hmm. um, food preparation. And like I say, I think that's the way most middle-class Americans go about the process of food preparation. There's nothing wrong with that. It's an entirely appropriate response to the cheap fossil fuel era and the and an appropriate response to the choices available. But you and I envision a day when those choices are not going to be so widely available and mm-hmm. we're moving toward a different way of approaching food yeah, preparation. Yeah
1: and I started to say that a lot of restaurants are, res- or that most of them would be recipe driven with the exception of when you go to the Gulf Coast, for example, and they'll say fresh catch of the day subject to availability. At least they're somewhat paying homage to or honoring the idea that, well, if we didn't catch any tuna today, tuna won't be on the menu, you know, or uh, local locavore restaurants, which are getting to be more and more Good in point. vogue.
0: Yeah, I think the. The truly professional chefs are less recipe-driven than they are availability-driven, which is interesting, isn't it?
1: And really, I've been to some restaurants where there actually is a seasonal menu. Uh It varies from one season to another. You bet. And I know we're focused on preparation in the home, but um, I think one of the gold standards for many of us as cooks or chefs or whatever we fancy ourselves to be is um, what happens in a gourmet restaurant.
0: Right. And I would agree with you that the true professionals, particularly those who are focused on local foods and local sourcing and so forth, are by necessity less recipe-driven. Yeah, they're yeah. more driven by what's what's lovely and in season. Well, let's continue creating our straw man, if you will, this recipe-driven mindset. Okay. And I think lately and i would say lately meaning within the last generation the whole concept of recipe driven has been kicked up a notch in intensity and i am particularly aware of some of our the friends we have in the younger generation who seem constantly to be searching for new recipes constantly looking for new tastes.
1: And, you know, I think it's a chicken-egg question as to whether they have, you use the word itchy tongues, that is uh, a a tongue that is constantly looking for some new flavor to savor, or, when I say chicken-egg, or is it that the media has set this up and created that demand? And I'm thinking about the host of cooking shows, everything from Iron Chef to... Mr. Food, I mean, I, I don't Food Network.
0: Absolutely, there's um, an entire industry that is set up to profit from those itchy tongues.
1: Yeah, but are they? You know, my question as a, a communication person is looking at the uses and gratifications literature to say, well, you know, did the media kind of give them a little bit of a push there and say, and and help them set up a perceived need and then say and you can gratify that need by uh learning this brand new recipe.
0: I'm sure you're right. I'm sure there is that that's being driven by a marketing bent. Yeah. You know, if we get people convinced they need 18 different cookbooks every year, then we can sell mm-hmm. a lot of cookbooks. So, hey, you know, if you really care about food, if you care about nutrition, you need to buy these new cookbooks and take this new approach and try cooking without using any oil or try cooking without using any heat or Mm -hmm. whatever it is. Yeah. And I sense, particularly in our younger friends, valuing ingredients more simply because they're harder to obtain
1: that's, I, I, I would, I don't think that's necessarily true, but I think in spite of the fact that they might be hard to, to obtain. In other words, I think they truly are younger. Like I'm thinking our kids' generation, they seem to like fresh food off the farm or, you know, to be able to say, I picked this cauliflower today and you're eating it now. I, I do think they value that. I don't see that being a problem, but I think that they've grown up and to a certain extent, you and I did too, uh, the point we're making, not having to worry about whether the ingredient is hard to get or, no. or far, from far away. Yeah. I mean, cinnamon or uh, you know, a lot of spices, certainly, we can't grow that around here. Um, but did you ever, did your mother or did my mother ever make us feel, well, gee, that's going to be hard to, to get a hold of some cinnamon because right. that has to be shipped from halfway around the world.
0: Or but to use an example that's closer to home, avocado. You and I both love yeah. avocado. You love guacamole, which oh, is, yeah. uses avocado as its main ingredient. That is based on a food that you just cannot grow close to yeah. where we are. It practically has to be shipped in using typically planes. I mean, you you, you really yeah. can't ship it in on a boat. It really has to come in faster than that. So that's a we've become accustomed to being able to go to the grocery store and buy a fresh avocado.
1: Yeah. That's uh, right. We take it for granted. Yeah,
0: or the, the prototypical example we've named several times, red grapes 24/7, you know, we can we can go yeah. to store any time of the year no matter what the season is and buy seedless red mm-hmm. grapes. Most of the time seedless red grapes that taste wonderful.
1: So. Right. So, you know, I think that we've established that as an issue and especially with um if we're looking at sustainability, the fact that we may not always have um petroleum-based transportation allowing us to get a hold of those ingredients um, then I think we see where the problem is. If- and,
0: I, and I will say one of the things we noted one of our uh, daughter's former boyfriends was in a family where there was simply a contempt for any attempt to save food
1: leftovers were what do we say it's for the dog not for the person
0: correct if if food is not eaten at the meal for which it is prepared then it is going to be thrown in the garbage or given to the dog it's certainly not fit for human consumption right um
1: and whereas you and I really like leftovers because we don't have to cook from scratch that night and it's, uh, we, we revel you on know. a clean-out container sort of basis. <laughs> and,
0: and here's the point at which I may be stepping on some toes, and for that I apologize, but I firmly believe that in the post-petroleum era to come, we're going to move past this idea that people have of, I only eat this kind of food, or I never eat that kind of food. In the days to come, I think we're going to be hungry for calories. And if somebody offers us Vienna sausage and baked beans, we will gladly eat Vienna sausage and baked beans.
1: And now we do, I do think we should back up and say if someone has a food allergy, you don't, I mean, I don't want to step on those toes because I personally have a food allergy. And, if I were starving and my food allergy is mussels, I don't think I'd want to eat a bucket load of mussels to satisfy my hunger, Absolutely knowing that I was going to get deathly ill. Right. So we our our feelings and sympathy goes out to anyone who has a food allergy, with and the acknowledgement. We're not saying you should eat that food or feel guilty about not eating it. It's your body for whatever reason is rejecting that. But um, you know, I mean, I have an aversion to spam. You can go ahead and step on my toes. It brings back memories of. My college days, when my roommate and I had very little money, that and Hamburger Helper, we stretched our dollars using Spam. And don't I, much care for it anymore. I would <laughs> submit
0: that when that day comes and we're hungry enough, you will be grateful for Spam. Yeah. You may not eat quite as much of it as you ate as a college student, but we'll we'll be grateful. Um, And we don't need to get too out of the way here, but I think... One of the other things we're going to learn over time is that fat has become demonized in our society. And we're going to be grateful for fat because fat makes you feel satiated. It gives you a feeling of being satisfied. And we're going to be eager to feel satisfied with our diet.
1: Yeah, there are a lot of misconceptions out there about Low fat, this and that being sort of a panacea for what ails you. Yeah. Um. And and we clearly the body does need some fat, so I think we can go there. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about what our philosophy is on a, a kind of a positive. Note. Thank you.
0: Let's do getting to what you and I believe is an appropriate approach for the future, mm-hmm. and I would say hearkening back to uh, your grandmother uh, on your, your your mom's mom. Mm-hmm and our great-grandparents, starting, of course, with Barbara Kingsolver, whatever's lovely and in season, whatever grows well in our climate and on our soil. That's
1: right. There's some things I would love to be able to have, but if I can't grow it in central Alabama, it may not be something that we're destined to be able to grow. And the obvious example, obvious examples we've talked about before, you can't grow coffee here. You can't grow bananas. Um, We did plant a couple of olive trees out in the orchard in hopes that uh, we might, and, and certainly they are forming a couple of little olives. So we hope that we can coax uh, some vegetation maybe that we hadn't thought would be available.
0: But basically it's, um, a a function of what we can grow well and what we happen to have on hand. You and I are not at all reluctant to use foods that are exotic if they come into our household by whatever means.
1: For example, I grow edamame. So you might some people might say edamame that's pretty exotic don't you have to go to a sushi bar for that no you can grow it and i do yeah (laughs) and we've learned
0: that does grow well here in central alabama so we're delighted to have edamame to enjoy i guess what i was thinking about is the wedding stew where we had this all this chinese food uh that we purchased for adrian and her friends that was left over so we found a way to turn that into a wonderful stew. We incorporated
1: it it among other ingredients. Exactly. And the reason we called it wedding is we actually had a few leftovers from the wedding reception too. that got mixed in together, but that was some of the best stew. Uh but yeah, I think the idea is you, you, if you, if you are adventurous as a cook, combine a few things, make a stew, you'll find all kinds of uses for it.
0: (laughs) And a word or two about variety. Um, we just talked about this v- recipe driven on steroids, and you got to have new tastes coming in all the time. You got to have new cookbooks and so forth. There's remarkably little variety from year to year in the diet you and I are designing. I
1: mean, That's true. Yes. We
0: fix okra about the same way every year.
1: You know, because I like the way we fix it. I do too. It's healthy. Um why, why, I mean, to me, the variety is that I get to enjoy okra at certain times of the year and I have to take a break from it of necessity in the cooler months. So exactly. I'm always looking so, forward to it uh, in the so summer. So
0: variety is not a function of new recipes or, hey, I read about this in the New York Times. Variety is a function of seasonality.
1: Right. And, and I have no problem with that. I think that. Uh, and you
0: and I are really looking forward to enjoying asparagus, for example. Yeah, will have be some growing out there. A, an, a, a dish we enjoy during a particular time of year, and then it will be gone the rest of the year, um, unless yeah. we freeze it or something.
1: Which well, will... and and we've talked in earlier podcasts about the way we engage in food preservation, and we plan to continue doing that. So, um, canning, freezing, and the like. Uh, dry, possibly drying some food this year. Yeah, since we have a. So
0: there will be some. Yeah. Uh, I guess we will enjoy new tastes, just as you and I figure out new options for growing and and preparing and saving food. Right. We'll enjoy new tastes mm-hmm. just because we're learning more.
1: And you know, the other thing I'm getting into more and more, just gradually, is. New herbs, types of herbs that I have not grown before. Now, that will give you some new tastes if you You don't mind being a little adventurous with your herbs.
0: And I'm finding myself much more uh, likely to embrace those new herbs now because I I guess I have a philosophy in favor of, you know, if it's a locally grown, if if it's an herb that we can produce here, I'm predisposed to enjoy the taste because, hey, it's part of our subsistence.
1: Yeah, but you still don't like cilantro and basil too much, do you? True. Well, I like
0: basil in small quantities. small quantities. And I like cilantro in very small quantities.
1: And see, I like both of them in fairly good quantities. Yes, you do. (laughs) (laughs) We do have that compromise when it comes to time to prepare food. But herbs can be um, a nice, healthy way to introduce some Um, variability into the diet and now let's
0: finish with just a thought about what our subsistence approach to food means when you have food left over our approach is if we have more than we need we're looking for somebody to give it away to while it's still fresh while it's still something they can enjoy
1: And, and you know and we did a lot of that last year and i think on the other hand, we had some food that we said, you know, we can can these beans or we can do this. So we had, even when we gave away some, we had plenty to preserve for ourselves. Absolutely. Um, tomatoes, that was another great. We're still enjoying the tomatoes we froze from last year whenever we make pasta, which we did just last week. It was excellent. Which is not
0: to say we didn't give away a lot of tomatoes last year. But we gave year. away a
1: lot of tomatoes, too. That's right. And it makes you feel good, and, and you're helping people. So...
0: And I will say that even in contrast to our life in the suburbs before we came here, it's um, striking how little food we're throwing away now.
1: Yeah. And when we do, we have a really good use for it, and that's our compost bin.
0: Exactly. We can always
1: use compost. In fact, with just two of us, that's a struggle to produce enough, and that's probably a subject for another podcast.
0: Maybe so. We could talk about how we can generate enough compost. But it looks as if we have uh, more or less used up our time, and I'm stealing your thunder. You need to be closing us out.
1: All I want to say is have a great week, and we'll catch up with you then. See ya. You've been listening to Longleaf Breeze with Lee and Amanda Borden.
0: You can call the farm at 334-625-8682. Send email to letters at longleafbreeze.com. Our address is P.O. Box 780446 446 Tallahassee, Alabama, 36078. Visit us at longleafbreeze.com to learn more about the farm, to browse our archive, and to look over our planting database. You can also read the daily farm log and check in with Lee and Amanda. That's longleafbreeze.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.